0: What are some of the worst things a person can do that you can imagine? What are the worst sins a person can commit? I want you to keep that in mind because today we're going to look at an R-rated story in Scripture. I was trying to figure out what what story from from Scripture I should preach to go along with the message this week. And as I was going through it, I realized, wow, well, I don't think I realized as a kid that some of these Old Testament stories have some pretty adult content. Um, and I was like, well, is that, should I talk about that in church? But then I'm like, well, it's in the Bible, so I should probably talk. About it. So just as a warning, some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, there's a little disturbing content um, because the Bible, I believe, contains real life stories, and sometimes things that happen in real life are disturbing, and there is some um, con- some some adult content. So today we're gonna we're gonna talk about a story that has some sex, that has some violence, that has some intrigue. Uh, if it was a block, if it was a Hollywood film, it would be a blockbuster. Right? It would probably be in the category of drama, if not thriller, maybe. There's, there, there's some, some pretty intense stuff that happens in this story. Um, and we're going to be looking at today the story of King David. King David, now he's one of the heroes of Scripture. He is the, the king that sort of foreshadows the coming Messiah. But as we're going to see, he was also a very deeply flawed man. He was a very deeply flawed human being. Now, here's a little bit of backstory before we get to the story we're going to talk about today. When David was just about 17 years old, a prophet named Samuel showed up to him while he was tending sheep, uh, tending his father's sheep in the field, and Samuel anoints him as the future king of Israel. Now, there was a period of time that had to happen before he would finally come into uh, what he had been promised, his kingship. He had to wait about 13 years. During those 13 years, he faithfully served King Saul, or he was hiding from King Saul when King Saul became jealous of David. So it was while he was a teenager that we have the story of David and Goliath. He becomes a mighty warrior in Israel's army. When Saul begins to realize that David is the one that God has chosen to take his place, Saul then goes after David. David has to go in hiding in the wilderness for a number of years. Eventually, Saul dies. David is installed first as king over Judah and then as king over all of Israel and then several years into David's reign as king we come to the story that we're going to talk about today. Now, in David's early years, he was the picture of faithfulness and the picture of bravery and faith in God. But as we're going to see, things happened, and he began to become comfortable, and he began to get a little, bit of cock, get a little cocky. And the power that he had as king came to his head and let him, led him into some uh, pretty bad decisions. So we're going to start today in Second Samuel. In the Old Testament, the book of Second Samuel, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, as always, we'll put the, the text up here on the screens. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse one. Here's how the storyteller begins. "In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, the springtime was when usually people went to war. Uh, there was, you didn't have crops that you had to tend at the time because most of the, the soldiers were also farmers. They were all dual status, sort of like the National Guard today, right? They would have home lives, and then when the time for war came up, they'd go off to war. And so springtime was often when they would go up to war. In this particular case, it tells us that David didn't go with his people. Usually, the king went out and led the people into battle. In this particular instance, David stayed home. Now some commentators see this as evidence of David's dereliction of duty, thinking that he should have been going off to war with them. Other commentators disagree. They, they point to passages where some of the soldiers tell David that he should stay home because if something were to happen to him, then the light would go out in Israel. So we don't know if David was supposed to be at war and he was just avoiding his duties or if he was staying home. The text doesn't really tell us, but it does set the stage for what happens next. So here's how the story goes on. It says, One evening David got up oh, excuse me, hit the little button that says uh, X on backgrounds. There we go. We're figuring out this new technology. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, So the story goes on. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. And that seems sort of weird to us who live in 21st century America. Why would you walk around on your roof? But in that culture and in that day where they didn't have indoor air conditioning, right? When the days got hot and you could walk up and be on the roof in the cool of the day and you could sort of feel the breeze. Especially for David, whose palace was probably the highest point in the city. He would have been walking around. He could have caught the breeze and got a very nice view of the sunset from his elevated position. So he's walking around on the palace, on the roof. This was a very normal thing to do in that culture. Uh, It says, from the roof, however, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, at this, you might think, how in the world do you see a woman bathing from your roof, right? We have to remember, again, we don't live back, you know, in these days. But back then, they didn't have indoor plumbing, Aren't you thankful to live in the 21st century? Uh, In order for them to bathe, they would have to either carry water in from the town well or some uh, of the bigger homes would have a well in their courtyard. I'm going to show you some pictures here in a minute so you can sort of get the idea of what David would have seen and and how this was working. Um, But what I want to point out here is that David looking at the woman bathing was his first mistake. Now, it may have been more than a mistake. But we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But, but but in order to paint a picture for you in terms of how this would have happened, I want to show you some pictures. Some of them are, are artist renditions, others are photographs from what was probably going on. So this here on the screen is an uh, artist rendition of what David's temple probably would have looked like in the day. As you can see, it was set up high upon a hill, probably the highest area of the cities where they would have built this palace. And so you can see there are some roofs on there that if it was hot in the evening and David wanted to get some cool air, he could have walked around on the roof. And from that elevated vantage point, he could look down on the villages below him where the people would have been living. Uh, here is a photograph of that today. Um, those are the steps leading up. The, the, mo- the palace isn't there anymore, but the steps leading up to it are. And you can see, even from this photograph, that you can look down into the villages below. So you could see people who were down below. Now, that doesn't explain how in the world he could see somebody bathing unless you realize that in that culture, bathing typically happened outside because there was no running water, right? So they didn't have a sink or a bathtub or a shower. And if you're going to pour water and clean yourself, you're not going to want to do it indoors where there's no place for it to go. You're going to want to do it outdoors where the, the water can eventually evaporate. So I'm going to show you a picture next of what it was a traditional four-room Israelite house around that time period. So this is what a typical house would have looked like. You can sort of see there's two rooms on either side. Uh, Some of them had a second level and then a roof. And then in the middle, there's this open courtyard. And the the courtyard is closed off by a door from the front, but it's open from the top. And the reason for this, this is where they had their oven. They would often do their kitchen, right, their cooking, because they didn't have a way to get rid of the the smoke and all of that. So they'd have some sort of an oven in the courtyard. It's where they would do their cooking, and often, scholars tell us, that's where they would do their bathing. Uh, So if you are, if we go back... From an elevated position, and you look down in the evening when most people tend to bathe, which is that was the end of one day and the beginning of a new day, it's very likely that you could look down into a courtyard and see somebody bathing. That would have been common knowledge back in that day. One of the scholars that I read actually says that in the East, it's still custom if you're on the roof not to look down into other people's courtyards. Sort of like for us, it's not. Very polite to look in somebody's windows, right? Even if their windows are open, we tend not to want to look into someone else's house. In that culture, as well as the culture today, it would have been impolite to look down into someone's courtyard. So perhaps David was intentionally looking. Perhaps he was bored and, and he, was, uh, he was starting to let his mind wander and he was looking for someone Or perhaps someone who was bathing and had just caught his eye and he made the mistake of looking for too long. But the point I want to make by showing you all of this, showing you this, is that here's what I want to say. There's no reason at all to believe that this woman was attempting to seduce David. I've heard Christians and pastors and others say that at a time that that this woman was probably trying to seduce David. She would have known that she was bathing in a place that she could be seen, or perhaps she was bathing on the roof. None of these things are present in the text. This woman was not trying to seduce David. As a matter of fact, as we're going to find out, she was doing, she was following the Israelite law of cleansing herself after her monthly period. There was a ritual where seven days after your period, you were to engage in a ritual bath to cleanse yourself from the uncleanness. This is what she was doing. That would often happen in the evening, which was the end of one day and the beginning of another. For the ancient Israelites, the day began in the evening. So the day would end in the evening and begin in the evening. So she was doing what she was supposed to do. There's no reason at all to assume that this woman was trying to seduce David. I just want to make sure that we point that out, especially in our culture today when there's so often victim blaming. We say, well, if she hadn't been wearing that or if she hadn't been out there, we tend to blame the victim when she is the one who is violated by someone else. And that even happens by some commentators and some preachers as they read through the story. There's no reason at all to believe that this woman was trying to seduce David. So David made a mistake. He, he caught this woman bathing, he looked at her for a little too long, and he let things start to run in his mind, as we often do. You've probably been there, maybe it's not a woman bathing, but it's something else, something catches your attention, you get this idea, and instead of dealing with the idea and saying, no, 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 that's not right, I shouldn't let my mind go there, you start to let the idea sort of roll around in your mind, and starts to, like a snowball, pick up some steam, and eventually you decide, hmm, and you start to act on that maybe a little bit more. That's what we see David do next here's what he says, David sent someone to find out about her. He said, hmm, she's pretty. She's bathing. I wonder who she is. So, he sends, somebody to find out to, to, he sends somebody to find out who she is. Now, already, David is a married man. As a matter of fact, he has a couple of wives at this point, which is something, you know, we look back and we realize that the, the people that we call heroes of faith were really, they were flawed human beings, right? So, we need to be careful sometimes how highly we elevate the, the heroes of the Bible, we realize that, that they were flawed, they were human, they made mistakes. It wasn't God's will for them to have more than one spouse, but it's just what all of the other kings did, and we see them sort of giving in to the culture around them. So David, already a married man, sends somebody to find out who this is. The messenger comes back and says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In other words, his messenger is saying, hint, 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 David, She's already married. She's off limits, stay away. That's what the messenger is politely trying to tell David. Now, he has to say this in a way because the messenger is a messenger and the king is the king and you don't just talk back to the king, right, because the king has a lot of power. So he's trying to give David this hint, oh, by the way, she is married. Keep your hands off. Now, as we're going to find out that this woman was, that Uriah, whose wife this woman was, was actually one of David's trusted soldiers who was away fighting at war. So she's home alone. So what does David do? David says, "Oh, okay. Well, thank you for letting me know that she's a married woman. I will stay away." Right? That's you all. You've read the story. You know that David. At that point, he just says, "Okay, fine. You know what? I shouldn't. I shouldn't pursue her any further." That's what. That's what David does. Right? No, that's not what David does. Then, the storyteller tells us, David sent messengers to get her. David sent messengers messengers to get her. Now. If you are a woman living in ancient times who already does not have very much power or very much authority or really property rights of of any kind, and the highest person in the land sends for you, you don't really say no to the king. That kind of thing can cost you your life. So when we read this, again, I want to point out that I don't believe that Bathsheba was a willing participant in this. I think this is what we would um, refer to in our culture as power rape power, where somebody in an elevated position uses their elevated position to coerce someone into doing something for them. I don't believe Bathsheba really had an option in this. And if you look at the language that's used here, the verbs that are used here, this is David and David acting alone. Bathsheba is a victim in this. She really has no choice. We see this often today. Uh, If you are on social media, you have probably heard of the Me Too movement, the hashtag Me Too, where all of these women are coming out and they're telling their stories, and sometimes men, um, about people in positions of authority who use their positions of authority to coerce somebody below them into doing things that they don't want to do. And we recognize today in our law and in our culture that even if it appears that somebody gives consent, if there is too much of a disparity in power, that there can't really be consent there. That's why we recognize that if a person who is seeing a therapist gets romantically involved with their therapist, we recognize that the therapist has a certain amount of psychological power over the patient and that there can't be true consent in those opportunities. I'm just pointing this out again because I think too often we think, oh, well, Bathsheba should have just said no. But you don't say no to a king, especially when you're home alone, your husband's out at war, and you really have no power, and he can basically snap his fingers and have whatever he wants. So she, he sends for Bathsheba, she comes, and he sleeps with her. We would call this power rape, and then afterwards she went back home. The fact that she goes back home, again, is another indication, I believe, that she was not a willing participant in this. Her husband was away at war. If she had wanted to be involved in a relationship with David, there would have been no reason for her to go back home. Everybody in the palace already knew that she was there, already knew what David was intending to do with her. It wasn't any secret. He, he was that powerful. He could get away with that kind of thing. The fact that she went back home indicates that she did not want to be a part of what was going on. So she goes back home and some time passes and she begins to recognize some changes in her body. She begins to recognize that what happens when you engage in sexual relations and they didn't have the kinds of contraception we had back then. She realizes she was pregnant. So here's what she does next. It says, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now this would have been devastating news to both parties. It would have been devastating to Bathsheba because it would have been very clear proof that she had been involved in adultery. And according to Old Testament law, those who are involved in adultery, the penalty was death. Her husband was away. Everybody would have known that it wasn't her husband who made her pregnant. For David, this doesn't turn out well for him. Everybody in the palace knows that he had her over, right? She turns out pregnant. All of a sudden, word can now begin to spread throughout the kingdom. And so David now begins to devise a system to cover up his sin. And isn't that what we often do, right? We do something wrong, things don't go the way that we want, and instead of coming clean and admitting it and, and owning up to the, co- the consequences, we often try to cover up our sin. And if you've done that before, you know that that just never works out well. What's that old quote? When it, when first we reason to dis... I forgot it now. Somebody know it? The, when first we reason to dis... What a tangled web we weave when first we reason to deceive, right? What a tangled web we weave when first we reason to deceive. So that's what David begins to do here. story goes on. David sent this word to Joab. Joab was the leader of his armies. He was the commanding general out at war. He sends this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. So so David sends for Bathsheba's husbands. Says, bring Bathsheba, bring Uriah back home. He's trying to cover his tracks. But he can't let Uriah know what's going on, right? Uh, So when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. So David's pretending just to get an update on the war, right? They didn't have Facebook or Twitter or the evening news back then. He couldn't just turn on the television and see what was going on in the war. He had to have messengers come back. So he, he brings Uriah back as a priest tense to figure out what's going on, but really, he's trying to cover his tracks, and here's how he does it. He says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. What David is doing, he said, hey, you're back home. Now that you're home, why don't you go home, right? You're already here. Why don't you go home, have a nice meal, maybe spend the night with your wife, wink, wink. Right? Nudge, nudge. David is trying to cover his tracks knowing that if Uriah goes home and sleeps with his wife, the, the time period is close enough that nobody will know that Uriah is not the father of the child. David is trying to arrange this so that, Uriah, so that nobody will know and maybe he can get away without being caught in his sin. But... Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Now, why in the world would Uriah not go down to his house when he had the opportunity to? Why not go back and get a nice home cooked meal and spend the night with his wife? It's a good question. David had the same question. Bane, why didn't you go home? Inwardly, David is like really nervous, right? He's like, dude, you don't understand what's going on here. You have to go sleep with your wife. You don't understand what's going on here. In the next couple of verses, we're going to see that the author portrays Uriah as a more noble and honorable man than the king. Here's Uriah's response. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. In other words, he's demonstrating his honor. He says, the rest of my fellow soldiers are out living in tents. They don't get to come home and have home-cooked meals. They don't get to sleep with their wife. I am going to enter into solidarity with them. I see this today in the military myself. Uh, As a chaplain, I get to go and be among soldiers, and oftentimes I see that the commanders and the the officers, even though sometimes they have a a right to nicer quarters and nicer situations, they will often live in the same conditions as the soldiers beneath them to demonstrate honor and solidarity and respect for those. Uriah is just trying to be respectful and he's just trying to be honorable all the while the king who is supposed to set the moral standard for everybody else is acting dishonorably and is trying to cover his tracks. And so now uh, this should have picked pricked David's conscience. He should have seen Uriah acting honorably and he should have said, "You know what? This pricks my conscience." This, this gets me in the heart. I need to come clean. I need to confess. I need to face the consequences of my actions. But he doesn't. He does what so many of us have done in the past. He just digs himself even deeper and tries even harder to cover up his sin. Here's what he does. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. He's like, just one more night, please. And so he, he adds, he, he, he tries even harder. Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. David thought, okay, I get it. He's honorable. He's he's respectful. Maybe if I just get him drunk, he'll lose that inhibition, and he'll want to go home and spend the night with his wife. But even in that state, Uriah demonstrated more honor and more nobility than the king in his sobriety. So now David is at at a loss. What is he supposed to do? He he can't get Uriah to go. His plan to cover up just isn't working. So David decides, now is the time to come clean. I'm going to admit to my mistake. I'm going to face the music. If Uriah, if my soldier is honorable, then I am going to do the honorable thing. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately, David's pride and his fear caused him to do something even worse than his original sin. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die." He arranges for the death of Uriah. And not only that, how brazen do you have to be to send somebody's murder instructions with that person? Right? And how noble is Uriah? He doesn't even look at the instructions. He's carrying his own death warrant. You see contrasted here the nobility of Uriah with the ignobility of Uriah of David this presents us with a very stark picture of the viciousness of sin and self-deception and cover up when we when we let sin in our minds in our lives go unaddressed and we try to cover it up it just spirals and spirals and spirals and spirals out of control now David is guilty not just of adultery and rape, but now he's guilty of murder. He arranged for the death of Uriah on the battlefield, and that's exactly what happened. So we're going to fast forward in the story a little bit to Bathsheba's response. What happens to Bathsheba when she finds out? When when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. The word mourned here could be translated as lamented or wailed. It's It's an extreme emotion. Right, this is another indication. Uh, Old Testament scholar Richard Davidson argues that the use of this Hebrew word is another indication that Bathsheba was not a willing participant in in the affair with David. And when she finds out that Uriah was dead, she just loses it. She wails, she laments, she mourns. But what is she to do? Now she is with child and her husband is dead and everyone knows that he didn't go home. If she's found to be with child, it would be the end of her life. What is she to do? After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And in doing this, David's making himself look like the good guy. He's saying, oh, well, her husband is dead. She has no one now to take care of her and protect her. She has no children, so I will take her unto myself, and I will give her an heir. And so he makes himself look like he's the noble one. Here, Bathsheba really has no choice, right? She can't say no because then she's going to be found with child, and that would be the end of her life. So she is literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. She probably doesn't want to go back and be with him, but she has no other choice. So she does what any woman would do in her position. She does what is going to protect her and her child. David, in the meantime, is portraying himself as this good and honest noble leader and it looks like he has gotten away with murder literally. From the outside, David looks like the hero and he looks like the good guy. But, but, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now again, notice, the thing that who had done? David. Not David and Bathsheba. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Here's the thing about sin. It doesn't stay hidden forever. Eventually, Scripture tells us our sin will find us out. And the more we try to cover it up, the digger we deep ourselves, the harder it's going to be. We may be able to fool the people around us, this story tells us, but we can't fool God. We can't fool God who searches the heart and the mind and sees the innermost parts of our being and everything that we do. David's going to find this out firsthand in a little bit. In the next chapter, We learn that the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan was the prophet of the time. The prophets, the kings, functioned as the the political and military leader of Israel. The prophets functioned as the spiritual leaders of Israel. Nathan is the spiritual leader. He's the one that God sends to confront David for his sin. Now, Nathan has to be careful about the way that he's going to do this because, again, the kings have a lot of power and the kings have a lot of authority, and you don't just come up and oppose a king face-to-face. That could cost you your head. So Nathan has to come up and he has to confront David in a way that's not going to just end his own life. So here's how he does it. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it And it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man was refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who would come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, Nathan is clearly telling this story to bait David, right? He, we know, as the outside audience, that Nathan is telling the story, and we know that the rich man in the story represents David, right? But David doesn't quite see it yet. He doesn't, he doesn't see the bait. So here's David's response. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And he hooked him. Right? Here's a visual representation of what just happened to David. (laughs) Took the bait. And at that point, he had nothing to say. He he couldn't go back now, right? You are the man, Nathan says to him. And then he begins to lay out the consequences of David's action. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the land of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave... To you all Israel and Judah, and if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? In other words, God through Nathan says to David, what more could you have asked for? And even if you could have asked for more, I would have given it to you. Why did you have to go and do this thing and sin against these poor people who didn't have near what you have, David? Why did you have to do what was evil? I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. In other words, Nathan says there are going to be consequences for your actions. You have sinned And there is going to be judgment. Now, before we move on, I want to take just a quick minute and give you a brief excursus on divine judgment. Excursus means like a a little detour. Take a little detour. I just want to, because if you read through the New Testament, you're often going to read through things that make God seem very, very harsh. Right? That God does things that seem like, well, that's not something a loving parent, a loving God would do. And so I'm going to give you a couple of ways. And this isn't, you know, there are scholars who disagree with this. But these are ways that I think help me to understand uh, divine judgment. Now, this is going to be brief. I could and probably should do an entire sermon series on how to understand the, the judgment of God in the Old Testament, but I'm just going to run through this sort of quickly to help you realize that just because something is attributed to God in the Old Testament doesn't necessarily mean that God is actually uh, the doer of it or, or actively responsible for it. Uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see judgments uh, are presented... Um, through what we can call the principle of divine withdrawal, right? We see that God it promises to be a God for His people to provide and protect for them so long as they honor and keep His covenant, they'll have unique and special protection and provision. But God says, if you break my covenant, if you disobey what I command you, God says I will withdraw my protection and provision from you and I will allow things to happen to you that wouldn't otherwise happen to you with my protection. So God withdrawals because of people's sin, So it's not necessarily that God is actively doing the punishing, but that God withdraws His hand of protection and He allows people to experience the natural consequences of their sin. We see this. I have lots of scriptures to back it up, but I don't want to keep you here for uh, hours, so just trust me on it. Questions, then I'll give you some scriptures after the sermon, okay? So that's one way to to understand this. For instance, if I tell, um, you know, you, hey, don't put your hand on that stove. It's going to burn you. And I give you very clear instruction. If you go put your hand on that stove and it burns you, is that my fault? No. I gave you very clear instruction. I told you what would happen if you engage in that action. That's sort of what we see here. God, it, it, you know, because God is a loving God, because He doesn't control our every action, because we're not divine robots that God moves everywhere. Because we have free will, we are free to disobey God, but if we do, we are also free to experience the consequences that come from those actions. So, The point I want to make, it's not necessarily that God causes evil to happen, but he allows it to happen. And then when it does, he uses it then to teach a lesson. He says, see, this is what happens when you don't live the way that I tell you to live. If you engage in violence, then you're going to experience violence. This is just the way that the world works. And we understand this, right? People like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. all understand that violence begets violence begets violence. Right? So that's why God gives them instructions. If you're going to act in this way, you're going to experience consequences. And then when they experience them, he uses that to teach them a lesson saying, okay, see what happens when you live outside of the plan that I have for you? Why don't you come back into covenant with me, obey my commandments, and I will protect and provide for you. Uh, But sometimes in the Old Testament, they would still use active language. They would attribute these things actively to God as a way to help demonstrate that God was still sovereignly in control of the world. right? They, they they wanted to demonstrate, we still believe that God is in control, and so they'll sometimes use active language even um, when God is not the one actively doing the punishing or the judging. Um, this is going to be important again in a few minutes, um, but for now we're going to get back to the story. So David uh, Nathan shows up to David, uh, he traps him, David takes the bait, says the person who does this should be punished, and then Nathan lays it out, says, listen, you're the man, you did this, here are the punishments, and here is where David finally comes clean. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It took him getting caught, it took someone taking him to task, but it finally brought him to a point of repentance and confession. This is always, always, always the first step towards healing And redemption and restoration and forgiveness. The 12 step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous and others understand this. That's why the first step in the programs is admittance. Until we're willing to realize and admit that we have a problem, that we've sinned, that we've made mistakes, that we have hurt people and hurt ourselves and engaged in, until we're willing to take ownership for our actions, there can be no restoration. There can be no Renewal. There can be no healing. But once we're willing to take ownership and responsibility for our own actions and the damage they've caused, that then, as we're going to see, opens the door for God as a gracious and merciful and loving God then to come in and work for restoration and renewal. David admits and confesses his sin, and then something amazing happens. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now, that's mercy. Mercy is the withholding of deserved judgment, the judgment that we have rightly earned. Mercy is the withholding of that deserved judgment. The punishment for rape, adultery, and murder, according to the Old Testament law, was death. That was David's rightful punishment. God would have been right, Nathan would have been right, to issue... The death penalty to David then and there. But we see here that even in the midst of grotesque, horrible sin, that God is a gracious God and a merciful God and a forgiving God. But it took David being willing to come clean and confess and take ownership and responsibility for what he had done. Now, this isn't, this wasn't a completely get out of jail free card for David. There were still going to be consequences as we see. The verse continues, but, Nathan says, because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now, when we first read that, that seems pretty harsh, right? Why in the world would God punish this innocent child for David's sins? Well, I don't think that's what happened. And that's why I gave that brief excursus on divine judgment a little earlier. I think when we look at the New Testament, Jesus teaches us that God is like Jesus, and God has always been like Jesus. Jesus is the perfect representation of what God is like. We don't see Jesus punishing children for the sins of their parents. Matter of fact, it's not just the New Testament that we know, that we learn that. Uh, in In Deuteronomy chapter 24, this is what Scripture says, parents are not to be put to death for the death of their children, nor children put to death for their parents; each will die for their own sin. And this is a concept that's repeated again and again and again in Scripture. So what we see back in Second Samuel is another one of the, those instances where the the writer is attributing this to God, but the, with the understanding that God is not the one who brought about the death of the child. That uh, what I believe happened, and again, this is you can believe this or not. What I believe happened is that the, this you know the child mortality rate was lower then than it is today. Sometimes uh, children who are born don't survive. I think the child was probably going to die anyway, and God used this as an opportunity to prick David's conscience to help him understand the seriousness of his sin. I do not believe for a second that God killed this child for David's sin. and I believe that because Scripture tells us that children should not be put to death for the sins of their parents. I think this is an example of God using natural events to teach His people a lesson. So there were still in David's mind consequences for his action. He didn't die. And, and there, he was, he's going to face some family trouble later on. But he was given a second chance. He was given a chance to continue living and to do better the next time. And if you read through the next of the rest of the story of David's life, you see that he lives. And he continues to serve, and now he still makes mistakes, and things still go wrong, and he still needs grace and forgiveness. But we see that he never engages in this kind of thing again. God, in His amazing grace and infinite mercy, gives David a second chance. And not only that, if we read the, if we continue on in Second Samuel verse twenty-four, says this: David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, talking about this child, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through the prophet Nathan, uh, he sent word through Nathan the prophet name him the son Jedidiah. In other words, the name that God gives this child is God, is loved by God. That's what the name means. Jedidiah means loved by God. So we see that there is a second chance. Not their, their first child died, but God gives them another child, a son that they love. And not only that, the son that comes from this union was Solomon. Solomon becomes the next king of Israel. Solomon, as, if we, as we read the, the genealogies in Scripture, we see that Solomon is in the, the line from which Jesus would eventually be born. right? So God takes the situation that is birthed in sin, birthed in terrible actions, and God is somehow able to turn around and use it for something good. Not because the situation is good, not because David's actions were good, but because God is so good. And I don't think he did this for David. By the way, David had other children. I think God did this for Bathsheba, because she was a victim in all of this. I think God did this to bring her honor. Remember, in that culture, as a woman, your greatest honor often comes from the children you bear. And so for Bathsheba to be the one... Solomon was not David's firstborn son. Usually it's the firstborn who becomes king. But God chooses Solomon, I think, as a way to honor Bathsheba for all that she suffered and all that she went through. And God gives her a second chance. Because of what she suffered, because of what she went through, God figures out a way to to help her experience some sort of redemption from all that had happened. And they lived happily ever after Well, not quite. If you read through the rest of the story, there are some troubles. There is some family drama. Uh, David lived for about 20 more years, and some good things happened and some bad things happened. Um, Solomon became the next king. Bathsheba outlived David. But there was grace and mercy and second chances, both for David as well as for Bathsheba. So what's the moral, or what are the morals of this story? Moral is, you can go out and do whatever you want, and God will give you a second chance. You know that's not true. This is not, the story is not meant to be an excuse for sin. We see the drastic consequences that sin has. And maybe, as you hear this story, maybe you're uncomfortable thinking, David got too much grace. David got too much mercy. It's not fair. Maybe you're thinking, There's, th- David should not have gotten a second chance. Maybe, you, maybe you're upset about that. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable. And it should. Sometimes the outrageous mercy of God makes us uncomfortable. But here's what I want you to think about David was a rapist and an adulterer and a murderer. And you think, well, gosh, I've never done those things, right? But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes and he says, if you're angry, for your brother without cause you've committed murder in your heart if you look on someone with lust you've committed adultery in your heart and all of a sudden we realize we think back in our own lives well i mean i've i've done some pretty bad things i've done more than just made mistakes right because a mistake is something that we don't intend to do i've i've sinned i've done things to hurt people intentionally I've done things that were wrong, and I did them on purpose. And I did them over and over again. And when you think about it that way, you realize that I realize, I won't speak for you, I realize that things that I've done deserve pretty severe consequences. And so when I look at this story, and I see how God could have grace and mercy even on David, I begin to realize that God can have grace and mercy even on me. If God could give David a second chance, if God could give David the opportunity to set things right even a little bit, maybe God can do that for me. Some of you who are listening or watching online may be thinking to yourself, there may have been things that you have done and you think to yourself, there is no way that God could ever forgive me if you only knew how bad I was. There's no way that God could love me again or that people could love me again or that I could be forgiven. And I think that's why we have this R-rated story in Scripture. Because we look back and we see that David... A adulterer and rapist and murderer, when he took ownership of his sins, found mercy in the eyes of God. We begin to really understand the depths of God's love and the depths of God's mercy and the depths of God's grace. And there is nothing so bad that you have done that can keep you from his love so long as you're willing to take ownership, so long as I'm willing to take ownership and confess and admit my sin and my wrongdoing. There is grace and there is mercy and there are second chances, even for David, even for me, even for you. Now maybe you don't relate to David in the story. Maybe you're not the one who has done the terrible wrong, although all of us have done some version of terrible wrong in our life. Maybe you're the one right now who has been wronged. Maybe you relate more in this story to Bathsheba and you have been mistreated and abused and wronged. And and I think this story tells us too that God sees and God takes account and God notices. Even if nobody else understands what's going on, that God sees you in your suffering and He sees you in your pain. And I believe that there are second chances for you as well, that God is going to enter in and that you can find love and acceptance and grace even if you're not being shown that by the people who should be showing you that now. God sees. And if it doesn't happen now, we trust and we believe that God will, at some point in the future, set all things right well beyond our expectations and our satisfaction that God will bring about true justice and He'll right every wrong and He will restore you if you've been hurt. There are second chances for the abuser and there are second chances for the abused. Let me make this clear. Second chances for the abuser comes with accountability, with confession, with admittance, Right? We don't expect God's mercy and God's favor if we're not going to take ownership over our actions and over our sins. And it was a long road. And there may be consequences. When we plant the seeds of sin in the ground, we can't always escape all of the fruit that comes from them. There may be consequences. But there is grace. And there is mercy. And we believe, and as we're going to see in the coming weeks, that God is a God of mercy and a God of grace the God of second chances. So please, please, if there is anything in your life that you're hiding or covering up or trying, open your heart to God. Confess your sin to God and trust and know that we have a God of love and of mercy who is ready and willing and able and desiring to offer you grace and mercy and lead you into newness of life. We serve a God Second chances. Let's pray. God, we thank you for recording this story in all of its vivid, disturbing detail. We thank you for the record of your mercy in the life of David. God, if I'm honest as as I read this, sometimes I think David didn't deserve that. And I realize that's right, he didn't. And then I realize, well, maybe I don't either, but you've given me grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. God, we thank you that you are a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. God, if there are any of us who are wrestling with with things that we have done or things that we're doing that we don't want to be doing, things that we've done that have hurt people and and we've covered them up, I pray, God, that you would give us the courage just to confess to take ownership, to admit. God, I pray that you would help us to throw ourselves on your mercy and that we can trust that your mercy is unfailing and new every day. God, I know that these stories are not